You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. It was 1986. On July 16th, Brian E. was worried about his friend Nancy. He'd dropped her at home late on the previous night, but now she wasn't answering her door. They had made a plan for him to help her move some of her belongings that morning, but around 9.30 a.m. he had banged on her door and rang the bell at her house, located at 811 Fifth Avenue Northwest in Chisholm, Minnesota. No response. This was odd. Brian left and called Nancy from a payphone, but got no answer. Returning and walking around the house, Brian found the doors locked tight and all the shades and curtains drawn, which was very unusual. And weirdly, a stool was on the grass right outside one of Nancy's bedroom windows, where Brian had never seen it before. Brian walked to the neighbor's house across the street from Nancy's. This was the home of Alan S. and his wife Corrine and their daughter Cassie and son John. Brian knew the couple slightly because Alan worked with him and Nancy at the Chisholm Ambulance Service. Brian knocked on the door and Alan let him in. Brian said, I can't reach Nancy. I was supposed to help her move some stuff today and her house is oddly shut down. Brian used Alan's phone to call the Chisholm police for a welfare check. Officers arrived at Nancy's house at 3.50 p.m. She didn't answer her door, which was locked. The back door was locked as well. They gained entry into the house by reaching through a louvered window and opening the back door. This from Brian's interview transcript, quote, Down the hallway towards her bedroom, I saw it was dark in there and the shades pulled, and I turned the light on and I didn't really see anything out of the ordinary at that time. Saw the bed covers kind of messed up and the pillows laying across the head end of the bed. And I just kind of looked around the bedroom a little bit and then I saw some fingers sticking out from under the bed covers. So I touched them and they were cold and there was rigor mortis present. So we pulled the covers back and saw Nancy lying there, end quote. At first, when I read this statement, I thought it was oddly clinical sounding. But then I remembered, of course, Brian was a paramedic. He said he knew right away, based on professional experience, that Nancy was dead. Nancy was buried under the bedclothes with a pillow over her face She was nude, lying on her back, arms outstretched, eyes and mouth open. She'd been dead for 10 to 12 hours. Nancy Jane Doherty was born May 24, 1948, in Ladysmith, Wisconsin, to parents Clyde and Carol Oswald. She grew up in Grand Marais, Minnesota. Nancy married young at age 19 to Kurt Larson. They tied the knot in 1967 and quickly had kids Gina and Jason. 
Nancy and Kurt divorced in 1975, and Nancy met her current husband, Jim Doherty, in Duluth. They married in 1978 and moved to Hibbing, but when Nancy was killed, she was in the midst of a divorce from her husband, Jim. They had been separated since the previous September, and Nancy was living in a small house in Chisholm, a safe town of just 5,000 residents on the Iron Range of Minnesota. Jim was in the armed forces and was stationed overseas when Nancy died. He told the Duluth News Tribune, quote, I got a call that there had been a family emergency and that I needed to return immediately. It took two days to get home. I was the last to know. Nancy's 18-year-old daughter Gina had graduated from Chisholm High that spring and had moved to Anoka to live with an aunt and attend college. She was going to school for horse training. Nancy's son Jason, still a high schooler, was spending the summer at his grandmother's in Grand Marais as he usually did. Nancy worked as a nurse's aide at Heritage Manor Healthcare Center and as a volunteer EMT for the Chisholm Ambulance Service. She enjoyed her job at the nursing home and working with the seniors, but she loved working for the ambulance service and took her role there very seriously. Friends told police that if Nancy was on call, she would sleep either in her clothes or with her clothes right next to her bed so she could jump into them and head right out. In fact, Nancy had decided to advance this part of her career and was planning to move to the Twin Cities, where she hoped to get a job and apply to a paramedic education program to receive more training. She really enjoyed helping people, to the point that her daughter Gina recalled a road trip in Alaska where her mom had stopped to help some car accident victims. And a friend relayed that Nancy also helped get three employees from the nursing home fired for elder abuse. Nancy was active and athletic, playing on women's recreational volleyball and softball teams. She and her daughter Gina even played on a team together. She loved to bike as well. Her kids said she took them camping, fishing, skiing, and she loved to just sit in the sun and soak up the rays, too. She was strong for her size, which was important because at both the nursing home and as part of the ambulance crew, she had to lift large people, so she needed her strength. Everyone agreed that Nancy definitely would have fought if she were attacked. They also said Nancy never locked her doors or closed all the shades the way her house had been found. Someone had tried to delay her body being discovered. Nancy was a social smoker and drinker, but did neither to excess. According to everyone who knew her, she was warm, friendly, nice to everyone. She was a genuinely down-to-earth, caring person whose only fault seemed to be that she was dissatisfied with her love life, and she had a bit of a history with men despite being married, as we shall see. Her life was in flux at the time she died. She was applying to paramedic programs, she was finalizing her divorce, she was moving to the Twin Cities. There was a lot of change going on. Nancy's daughter Gina had lived in Anoka for only 10 days when she received word of her mother's unthinkable death. She later told the Duluth News Tribune, quote, I went into major shock. I didn't come out of depression for five years, end quote. Scott Erickson was a patrol officer at the time of the murder who knew Nancy from the ambulance service in town. He went on to serve as police chief, with Nancy's case being his top priority and his most frustrating case. He said in an interview about Nancy, quote, She could be a complete stranger, and in five minutes of talking with her, you'd feel like you've known her for a long time. She had a beautiful personality, calm, poised, and fun to talk to. When you'd leave her, you could never forget her. She always left an impression. I spoke with now-retired Chief Erickson, and he told me that Nancy was a very lovable person, and her case was an absolute bear.
Lots of first responders arrived at the scene at Nancy's house because Nancy was well-known within the EMT community, and her murder was a total shock to her colleagues. Meanwhile, Chisholm Police Chief Robert Silvestri, observing the scene, recognized quickly that his small department needed additional resources to handle a homicide case like the one before him on July 16th. He called Floyd Bowman of the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, or BCA, and secured the crime scene until BCA crime scene analysts arrived. Dr. Stanley Eilers, the local ME, arrived at Nancy's house and took in the scene. He noted abrasions on the dead woman's throat and a whitish substance between her legs. Her hands were bagged and her body was removed for autopsy. Once crime scene team leader Terry Labor arrived, Nancy's house was processed and more than 70 items were collected as potential evidence. Fresh seminal fluid was detected on the bedsheet under Nancy's body and on a pink washcloth on the dresser in the bedroom. The guy had cleaned himself up. Nancy's hair was damp when she was found. Remember, her body had been covered by the bedding with little air circulation. But that's not all that was wet. A pair of jeans, grayish-blue underwear, and white socks collected from the bedroom floor were moist and grass-stained. According to BCA tech Terry Labor, the socks were soaked through, soiled and grass-covered, and looked as if someone had worn them outside without shoes. The glasses Nancy always wore were found on the kitchen floor halfway under the dishwasher. They were collected along with bath and bedroom rugs and vacuum sweepings, two pill bottles from the bathroom sink, an address book on the kitchen table, the shades from the bedroom, the bedding and washcloth from Nancy's room, kitchen towels, a clean terry cloth bathrobe with some hairs on it lying on the bedroom floor at the foot of Nancy's bed, and the entire clothing hamper from the bedroom, which contained a number of items including towels and a bra and panties. Terry Labor also observed blood on the dishwasher front panel and on the floor in front of the dishwasher. Samples of those small bloodstains were collected. A dirt and grass-stained sweatshirt with a horsehead emblem was found in the laundry basket. It was believed to be what Nancy was wearing when she was last seen. Terry Labor said, quote, It appeared someone used the sweatshirt to wipe themselves off or soiled it when it was worn inside out, end quote. A bandana was found by a tree near Nancy's garage. It was not believed to have belonged to anyone in the family. Also, an earring was found by the microwave in the kitchen. Police would learn that it was part of the pair Nancy was wearing that night. The other was never located and was suspected to have been taken as a trophy. According to old news articles, Nancy's investigation was complicated because she'd hosted a party to celebrate her daughter's high school graduation shortly before her death. So, there were lots of latent prints found all around the house, and police had to work to figure out who they belonged to. Latent fingerprint lifts were taken from a Peachtree schnapps bottle, a green glass candle holder, a Doritos bag chip clip, and a Disney glass. Some of these would later be mentioned by Nancy's friend Brian as things he might have touched the night before when he had a drink with Nancy. But latents found on several surfaces were not linked to anyone at that time. There were no matches to a palm print on the dryer, a palm print on the kitchen counter, and a fingerprint on the toilet lid in the bathroom. A fingerprint taken off the window shade of Nancy's room was smudged and deemed to have no evidentiary value. Meanwhile, detectives perusing the perimeter around the small house noted some crucial clues. 
A patch of grass outside the back door was matted down and clumped, showing that something had happened there. And in the minds of police, that explained the grass that they found on Nancy's person and on the clothing that lay on her bedroom floor. She had initially been attacked and knocked down in her backyard, getting grass on herself during an apparent physical altercation with her assailant. What was strange was a pile of vomit found in the yard behind the house, in the area of the matted down grass. Then something really odd. Brian told the investigators about the footstool. He had seen a small footstool was on the ground, upright, positioned directly outside one of the bedroom windows in Nancy's modest single-story home. Intact green grass under the stool illustrated that it was not normally in that spot. Brian didn't think much about it at the time because there was yard furniture and gardening implements all around, but he did mention it to police. He had stood on the stool to try to look in Nancy's windows to see if she was okay, but the curtains were closed. Dr. Eilers performed an autopsy on Nancy on the 17th at the morgue of the Central Masabi Medical Center in Hibbing. The 38-year-old had been raped and manually strangled. She died of asphyxiation secondary to manual strangulation. Abrasions on her neck were plainly visible. Using fingerprint powder, the doctor brushed Nancy's throat and found an entire handprint showing where her killer had grasped her. Her eyes also exhibited scleral injection, which just means dilated blood vessels, typical with strangulation. Petechiae covered her face and head, also as a result of strangulation. And once Dr. Eilers opened Nancy up, he found that sure enough she had a large amount of hemorrhaging internally in the neck below her thyroid gland. She also had moderate to severe blunt force injuries to the head and face, including a bruise on the inside of her lip, a post-mortem split in the skin of her left shoulder, and internal injuries to her rib area. Based on the stiffness of the body and blood pooling, time of death was estimated at between 3 and 5 a.m. Pubic hair homings were collected as well as hairs on the body. Vaginal, oral, and anal swabs were taken and preserved, and sperm was detected on the vaginal swabs and on one from Nancy's buttocks. Dr. Eilers, who was at the scene at Nancy's house, opined that based on his observation at the scene of visible seminal fluid coming out of Nancy's vaginal area onto the sheet below her, as well as his detection of spermatozoa on the vaginal smear, he guessed there was no movement following the sexual act. In other words, once Nancy was raped, she never stood upright again. Nancy's blood was taken and left and right-hand nail clippings were preserved, as was the bedsheet used to transport her. Vegetation that appeared to be grass was found on Nancy's navel, behind her right ear, on her shoulder, and on her buttocks and lower back. A thorough police canvas of the neighbors uncovered some more clues. At some time between 3.15 and 3.30 a.m., two neighbor girls were in bed when they heard some disturbing noises. 18-year-old Cassie S. and her friend Terry told canvassing police that they were still up because they'd been out super late at a toga party and then an after party at a friend's apartment. Cassie drove some other girls home, and then she and Terry arrived at her home at 2.45 a.m. This was at the home of Cassie's parents, Alan and Corrine, at 430 Northwest 9th Street. The couple was friends with Nancy. Alan and Nancy worked together at the ambulance service and the couple and Nancy often socialized as neighbors. This was the house from which Nancy's friend Brian had called the Chisholm police for a welfare check. 
At 18 years old, Cassie knew Nancy as well, and her parents had told her that Nancy was getting a divorce from her husband Jim. Nancy's house was catty corner from Cassie's house on the corner of Fifth Ave and Ninth Street. In fact, Cassie's bedroom was a corner room closest to the Doherty home. And that summer night, both windows in Cassie's bedroom were open, which is how the girls could so clearly hear the noises from outside. Terry and Cassie were in bed chatting when they heard a cry from outside, and it sounded at first like a little kid. Then they heard some screams, punctuated by calls of help, help, and something that sounded like "stay away from me." It was a woman's voice, and it was coming from somewhere outside. Then several more screams, strangled ones. It sounded like someone was trying to cry out with someone else's hands around their throat. They sounded muffled, and the voice was quavering. The girls stood at the window and could tell that the screams were coming from the direction of the Doherty house. Noting that the lights were on in Nancy's living room, they decided to get out of bed and go investigate. I could not help but think that they were very brave to do this, and also that I wish that instead they'd called nine one one. Anyway, the two teens walked up the darkened street toward Nancy's, staying on Cassie's side of the street across from Nancy's. When they got in front of the Doherty house, they heard one faint noise and a gravelly male voice, and then all went quiet. From Cassie's impression, the male voice was arguing with the female, but she couldn't make out any actual words. The noises sounded like the arguing couple had moved inside the house. Cassie and Terry turned around and went back home to bed after discussing what they had heard and chalking it up to a couple arguing, presumably Nancy and her husband, who Cassie knew were in the process of divorcing. Meanwhile, Cassie's brother Jonathan also had his windows open, but he was asleep. He vaguely heard sounds that made him think a baby was crying and something that sounded like a slap, but he went back to sleep without giving it too much thought. This is usually the place in the episode where I explain that the victim had no drama in their lives, no hidden secrets, and police were stumped as to possible suspects. Well, not here. This case was complicated by the fact that Nancy's love life was well complicated, and because of that, there was an abundance of potential suspects. BCA agent Floyd Bowman, along with the Chisholm PD, conducted initial and follow-up interviews with Nancy's friends and family to try to come up with a list of men who might want Nancy dead. Of course, they had to talk to Nancy's co-workers on the ambulance service, her fellow employees at the nursing home, members of her husband Jim's social pistol shooting club, people who knew Nancy from pubs she frequented in town, friends on her softball team, and so on. But closer to home. Nancy's friends Sharon, Nola, and Joanne had all sorts of information for police about Nancy's extramarital activities, as they are referred to in the police files. A lot of this amounted to unfounded gossip spurred by petty grievances and judgy attitudes, but some of it was based on fact too. For one thing, there was Nancy's husband Jim. The two were in the midst of divorcing. The summer that she died, Nancy had been living alone at the home in Chisholm. Jim had been living in a home on Six Pack Road that he was renting. It's unclear whether things were acrimonious, but people who were close to Nancy told police some negative things about Jim. I want to be clear here that none of these stories are substantiated. They do not even rise to the level of allegations, and they may all just be malicious gossip. The rumors said that Nancy had been considering divorcing Jim as far back as 1982. They fought nonstop, and Nancy was unhappy. She indicated that Jim had a temper and had physically abused her in the past. One time, she told a friend that if she was ever found dead out in the woods behind the house, Jim did it. 
Another time, Nancy told her friend her brand new glasses were broken and implied it was because of Jim. Nancy apparently gave Jim an ultimatum that amounted to, stop with the abuse or I'm leaving you, and Jim cleaned up his act. But it wasn't enough to save their marriage. Nancy told some people that Jim would force himself on her if she didn't like it, but she didn't know what to do about it. She mentioned to at least two other men more than once that she was afraid of Jim and she was scared of what he might do if she tried to leave him. She never said exactly what Jim did to her, but it was reportedly a lot of bad verbal and emotional abuse, and he had grabbed her, shaking her and throwing her around in the past. However, despite Jim, of course, being a primary suspect based on these tales, police quickly learned that Jim could not have killed Nancy. He was in Germany that week part of a scheduled Duluth Air Guard two-week training program. Police verified this alibi, and Jim was crossed off the list. But the police investigation revealed that Nancy had not been faithful to Jim and had been dating other men in Chisholm throughout their marriage. Back in 1980, Nancy had started seeing a guy named Gary N. Gary was several years younger than Nancy and had a wife named Joe Marie. Gary met Nancy when she was a bartender at the keyboard lounge, which he would frequent. He knew she was married, but he took an interest in her. They started a sexual relationship, either going for a drive in his truck or meeting at her house. They saw each other casually for about a year and a half, meeting between 15 and 20 times for a hookup. Gary said he never wanted more and he was not in love with Nancy. But there were a couple of very uncomfortable incidents where Gary's friend, Nancy's husband Jim, caught them together. One time was at Gary's cabin, where Nancy was wearing only a blanket. Then Jim caught them together again, and Jim punched Gary and said he didn't want to find him with his wife again. Gary and Nancy ended things, and Gary moved to California. But he was back in Minnesota at the time that Nancy was murdered. He was living far away in Elk River and told police he only ran into Nancy once or twice after that last incident. He didn't really have an alibi for the night of Nancy's murder, saying he was probably at work but police did not seem interested in him and backburnered him. Then there was one suspect who raised investigators' eyebrows early in the case and sat firmly atop the suspect list for years and years. And this was for good reason. There was a lot to point to Brian E., Nancy's sort of not-really ex-boyfriend. You'll recall that Brian was the one who had requested a welfare check because he couldn't get in touch with Nancy, and he was there when police found her body. And he admitted to being the last person known to see Nancy alive. Well, he piqued the interest of investigators right away. BCA agent Don Kosky and some Chisholm investigators sat down with Brian on the 16th, the day Nancy was found. A little background on Brian. He was 31 years old and living in Appleton, Wisconsin, working for Gold Cross Ambulance as a paramedic and also serving as a volunteer firefighter. He was originally from Hibbing and his parents and sisters still lived there. He was in town because he had a job interview in Minneapolis and another one in Edina. So he decided to stay and visit with family and friends for a few days, and that included Nancy. Brian told police the following. Brian had met Jim and Nancy seven years earlier in 1979 when he was on a competitive pistol team with Jim. There was a dinner for all the members and their spouses. Despite the fact that she was seven years his senior, she was 31 and he was 24, Brian was immediately taken with Nancy. He said in his interview that he thought she was a very special lady. He was struck by three things about her, her eyes, her voice, and her shape. 
He socialized with her and Jim quite a bit and said that he really liked Jim and enjoyed talking to him. Then, starting in May 1982, Brian ended up working on the Chisholm Ambulance Squad and so did Nancy. They were paired up together during Nancy's first runs and they worked together through December 1984. Brian really liked her, but he knew she was married and he tried to suppress his feelings. But he was unable to, and they first hooked up on August 20th, 1982. Nancy told him she had never been unfaithful to Jim before. To say Brian was smitten is a vast understatement. Basically, Nancy was the love of his life. He moved to Chisholm to be closer to her. He requested to be assigned with her on the ambulance squad, and his feelings for her kept growing. He said that at the time he and Nancy got together, Jim and Nancy were having marital problems and had almost divorced but decided to give it another go. But Brian and Nancy said I love you to each other and had sex a number of times, although never at Nancy's house. One time, Jim caught Nancy and Brian together in a bar, and he and Nancy had a big argument about it. Apparently, Jim threatened Brian. Eventually, Nancy and Brian stopped having sex when she started to feel guilty. The last time they were together physically was in January 1984. Brian graduated from his paramedic program in 1985 and got the Appleton job. Nancy was honest with him that Jim was moving out, but that she didn't want to rush into another committed relationship. Brian, however, knew that Nancy was the one he wanted to be with long term. He wrote her many, many letters while he was living in Appleton. I read through them, and so did the police after they were found among Nancy's things. Nancy never wrote back to any of the letters, although Brian begged her to respond. He was clearly desperate for any shred of attention from her, and he stated as much. He said things like, I long to hold you close, I miss you lots, and so on. But he also expressed anger and sadness that she didn't return his feelings. He accused her of being selfish, not making time for him, always putting him off, and never following through on her promises to spend time with him. Joanne H., Nancy's BFF, told investigators that when Nancy told Brian that he should find himself a nice girl, he responded, I already have, you. It's unclear if Nancy ever had any real feelings for Brian, but even if she did, by this point, she was seeing someone else and had not told Brian this. So in mid-July 1986, Brian was pining for Nancy from afar, and he decided to visit his hometown and hope to get some time in with Nancy. On the night of the 15th, he got to Hibbing around 7 p.m. He hung out with his dad for a bit, and then he called Nancy and she invited him over. When he arrived, Nancy's best friend Joanne H. was there, and the two women were drinking Bloody Marys and chatting. They had already had dinner. Brian had a peach tree schnapps. Remember, he told police his prints would be on the bottle and glass. Nancy got a phone call sometime after 8 o'clock, and Brian didn't know who the caller was, but said it was a short and somewhat terse conversation on Nancy's end. Around 9.30, Joanne left, and Brian and Nancy went out to the Tibrock Bar in Chisholm. At the bar, Brian drank beer, and Nancy drank three Southern Comfort Sours. They left the bar around midnight, and Brian drove Nancy home. This from the transcript of Brian's interview. Question, did you leave right away, or answer, no. Question, okay, can you tell me what happened? Answer, sure. Nancy and I sat in my vehicle for a while and talked, and she was going to go in. And I was going to go home, and I said, can I use your bathroom before I leave? And she said yes and invited me in the house, and I went to the bathroom, and then we sat down on the kitchen table and talked for a little while more. Brian said he finally left at approximately 12.30 a.m., maybe 12.40. 
It was apparent to police that he had been hoping for an invitation to stay over, but he denied this. He said he and Nancy made a plan that Brian would return the following morning around 9 or 9.30 to help Nancy and Joanne finish packing up and load up some of her stuff to move to a storage facility in Hibbing. This was in anticipation of her move to the Twin Cities. And this part is where police started to pick up some vibes from Brian that he was maybe creeping on Nancy a little. Okay, a lot. Brian said he got in his car and started driving away, but he only drove around the block. He went back to Nancy's house and parked and knocked on the door and walked in. The lights were off everywhere except Nancy's bedroom, and when she heard him, she came out of her room, pulling her sweatshirt over her head as if she'd been getting changed. Brian said, Nancy, it's starting to rain a little bit. What are we going to do tomorrow if it rains? He was referring to moving her stuff in a pickup truck, and she said, we'll talk about that tomorrow. And he said he then left and drove to his parents' house in Hibbing. So as you can hear, Brian prolonged this entire event with Nancy. First, he got himself invited into the house by saying he needed to use the bathroom. This was after Nancy had said she was going to go in for the night. Then, he sat down at the kitchen table and talked with her some more until she said she needed to go to bed. At the door, he hugged and held her for a bit and told her how good she felt. He said they shared a little kiss. He said to her, I always hate saying goodbye to you, and she said, I know that. Then he finally left and came right back and knocked on her door again and walked in. They had the exchange about the rain. He left and went home. Nancy ended up dead after a struggle with someone outside her house three hours later. When Brian left, he said Nancy was wearing a pair of blue jeans with a gray sweatshirt that had a little horse emblem on it, something of her daughter Gina's. She was wearing tennis shoes and a pair of dangly earrings that Brian had given her for Christmas. One of those earrings was the one near the microwave. The other has never been found. Investigators wanted to hear more about what Brian was doing at Nancy's house on the 16th. He explained about showing up to help her move her things, a prearranged plan. But he told them that when she didn't answer the door, he went to Nozon's car wash and washed his Bronco. Always a red flag. While on that errand, he stopped at a 7-Eleven and bought a soda and used the payphone to call Nancy's house. When she didn't answer, he went back to her house and noticed that the house was locked and the shades in her bedroom were pulled down. He said, quote, she has never done that in all the time I've known her. The shades had been open the night before, and on every one of the hundreds of times he had driven by her house when he worked in Chisholm and lived nearby. Anyway, Brian said he assumed Nancy was sleeping in, so he wasn't too concerned yet. By now, it was about 10.30, and he left for a while and went back to Hibbing and hung out with his friend Ken Capella at his gas station. He tried Nancy several times from the phone there before returning to her house around 11.30 or 11.45. At this time, he again knocked on the door and rang the doorbell and found the door still locked. This is when he walked around to the back of the house and tried the back door and found that locked as well, which was also strange. Multiple people Nancy was close with told investigators that Nancy never locked her doors. Brian walked back toward the front of the house and stopped and rolled up the window of Nancy's station wagon as he knew it was supposed to rain. Now he'd begun to think Nancy must have gone somewhere with someone. He left and visited with an old girlfriend in town who was widowed, Susie O. Around 1.30, he returned to Nancy's house and was again ringing the doorbell when Alan S. drove by and pulled over. He had seen Brian at the house trying to rouse Nancy that morning and had yelled jokingly that Brian should knock loudly as maybe she was asleep. Alan told Brian that his daughter Cassie and her friend had heard some concerning noises in the middle of the night. 
The noises sounded like somebody calling for help and choking. Alan and Brian agreed they didn't like the sound of this. They decided to give it an hour. If Nancy hadn't turned up, they'd call Chisholm police. Brian went home and came back in an hour. He again tried the doors and rang the bell. It was now about three o'clock. When he got no answer, he walked over to Alan's. They and Alan's son, John, who was also an EMT, discussed the situation, and Brian said, I don't like this. Then they called Cassie in and had her reiterate her story about hearing the screams the night before. After that, Brian was really alarmed. He called Nancy's friend Joanne at home and asked if she had seen Nancy. She said, no, I've been trying to reach her all day and I'm getting worried. So Alan S. called his buddy Chisholm Police Chief Silvestri and explained the screaming his daughter heard the night before and that Nancy was MIA. The chief dispatched Officer Dan Erickson to perform a wellness check. Officer Erickson showed up and he, John and Alan, and Brian all walked over to Nancy's. The doors were indeed locked. They were doing a lap when the officer noticed the flattened grass area in the rear. There was the pile of vomit, and there, on the edge of the flat grass, lay Nancy's keys on a keychain Brian recognized. They started to get the feeling that something was very wrong. They left the keys there in case they were evidence of some sort and tried to get into the house a different way. It was at this time that either Officer Erickson or Alan picked up the stool that was outside one of the windows and used it to look in somewhere else. For this reason, we're uncertain today as to where it was located, outside Nancy's window or outside Gina's window. And while the stool was photographed, unfortunately, it was never tested for prints or DNA. Anyway, the men were able to open the back door by reaching through the slats of one of the louvered windows and unlocking it. Looking around, Brian didn't immediately notice anything different from when he left the night before. The house was a mess because Nancy was packing. He didn't see her glasses on the floor in the kitchen where they were later found. Then they walked back into the bedroom and found Nancy. Brian became quite upset, and one of the guys led him out of the house. They took him over to Allen's and made him coffee, and he sat there and cried. In his first extended interview with Brian, police sniffed out immediately that Brian had a borderline unhealthy level of interest in Nancy. He knew an awful lot about her habits, her everyday activities, her plans. He knew all about her new haircut, what she wore to bed, what she had for dinner, the jewelry she wore, and so on. Brian confirmed under police questioning that he and Nancy had had an intimate sexual relationship over a period of many months. Brian said the two were intimate maybe 20 times. He said they knew it was wrong and called it off in early 1984. But police got the feeling that it was Nancy who put an end to things. Brian wanted them to continue. It has to be said that Brian basically made the police even more suspicious of him through his actions and behaviors. For one thing, as I said, he was clearly overly interested in Nancy and every minute detail of her life. He knew everything about her or professed to. Not only that, he admitted that he was still in love with her, even writing that in the unanswered letters and saying it hurt him that she didn't reciprocate. He had broken up with his own girlfriend when he learned that Nancy was getting a divorce. He also admitted that he was applying for a job in Minneapolis and had told Nancy that if he got a job there, she was welcome to come and live with him. Police wondered if perhaps he was suddenly interested in Minneapolis because Nancy wanted to move there. And then there was the jealousy. Brian had learned that Nancy had spent New Year's Eve with someone special, and there was another incident in which he was made painfully aware that she was dating someone else. We need to talk about Scott. 
It turned out that when she died, Nancy was pretty serious with a guy named Scott L. Scott was 12 years Nancy's junior. They met at the nursing home Heritage Manor where they both worked. Scott told the investigators that they met in 1982, started having an intimate relationship in March of 84, and were still seeing each other when Nancy was killed. Scott said the two were in love and had discussed a future together. In fact, he'd moved to Minneapolis in May of 1985, and she planned to join him there. Nancy told Scott that she wanted to get out of her marriage, but she had to proceed with caution because she was concerned about financial stability for her kids and also the stigma of being twice divorced. Nancy had routinely lied to her husband Jim when she sneaked off to see Scott, telling him that she was visiting friends or her mom. Note from the dates that Nancy had broken things off with Brian before she started getting physical with Scott, but she was not honest with either of the men about the other. She told Scott that she and Brian had never dated, which was untrue. She made it out like Brian was possessive and a pest and wouldn't leave her alone. And Nancy never told Brian about Scott, but he found out anyway. Brian told the investigators the following story about Scott. In May 1986, he had returned to Hibbing for a visit and taken Nancy out to dinner and dancing for her birthday on May 22nd. He admitted that he would not have made the trip if Nancy hadn't agreed to go out with him. He drove Nancy home fairly late, around 1 a.m., and when they got to her house, there was a car sitting outside with someone sitting in the driver's seat. And Nancy made a joke of, oh no, I think I'm in trouble. Brian asked her if this was a boyfriend, and she said, kind of. She said he'd better not walk her to the door, and then she said goodnight and went into the house. Well, get this. Brian wrote down the license plate of the car. He said he was just curious, but clearly he badly wanted to know who was parked outside Nancy's house. And this was before what happened next. Brian drove off in the direction of home, and the car started up and followed him. He drove around Chisholm for a while, waiting for the car to drop off, and it finally did. The next day, Brian had a friend who was on the Appleton Police Force run the plate, and it came back registered to Scott L. Brian and Nancy never discussed this event that took place just seven weeks before Nancy was killed. But now, Brian knew that Nancy was seeing a man who was waiting for her at 1 a.m. outside her house. In turn, Scott admitted to investigators that he had followed Brian. He said he wanted to surprise Nancy for her birthday and got to her house at 9 o'clock and she wasn't home. So he waited and waited and waited until very late, 1 or 2, when she pulled up in a car with Brian. Scott admitted to being upset and following Brian for a little while to find out who this man was who had been out with Scott's girlfriend. Scott confronted Nancy about going out with Brian, and she said they were just friends, and he was helping her apply to ENT programs in Minneapolis. Scott believed her that there was nothing going on, but he told police that he thought Brian was in love with Nancy, and Nancy had told him that Brian was possessive and called her constantly. So anyway, to police, this all sounded like a crazy love triangle, and Scott L. became a person of interest for a time. He was having an intimate relationship with Nancy and had reason to be jealous. He had demonstrated that he could be vindictive when he followed Brian in the middle of the night, and he didn't really have an alibi for the night of the murder. He said he was at home that night, 200 miles away, alone. Okay, let's get back to Brian's interviews. Police suspected that perhaps if he'd just found out about Scott or gotten the brush off from Nancy in favor of the other man, he might have killed Nancy in a jealous rage. Brian denied this. He said, quote, I will say I loved Nancy very much, and it hurt to see her with somebody, you know. I knew she'd been going out and stuff, and it hurt, but 
If she was happy, that was fine with me, end quote. Police interrogators tried to get Brian to admit that he was focused on getting sex from Nancy that evening, and that's why he was lingering at her house. He said that wasn't the case. They hadn't been intimate in over two years and were more like friends now. Although he always wanted sex to happen, he did not expect that it would. He said again, quote, If we ended up together, fine. If she ended up with somebody else, that was fine too, as long as she was happy. I loved her a lot, and her happiness was my main concern. Whether it involved me or not, if she was happy with somebody else, then so be it. End quote. Investigators just weren't sure whether to believe Brian or not. It didn't help that he kept coming back to them with information that pointed the finger at others. He told them that Jim was abusive to Nancy. He told them that Nancy's first husband owed $14,000 in unpaid child support. And he told them all about Scott sitting outside Nancy's house that night when Scott followed him. This from the transcript of one of Brian's many interviews. Quote, Brian, Nancy got a phone call that night between 8 and 9 o'clock. Maybe it was Scott calling from Minneapolis, and he had time to come up here and go to the house and find Nancy not there and wait and see me drop her off. Question, like he had done before. Answer, yeah, I'm not trying to draw conclusions, that's your job, but just to let you know where I'm coming from, end quote. Brian also told the police that the night that Nancy was killed when they were at the Tibrock Bar together, Nancy told him that one of the three guys sitting at the bar had been trying to go out with her and was pretty persistent. She had refused him repeatedly. Brian didn't know his name, but Nancy called him Red. She said hello to him and they exchanged pleasantries, but that was it. Brian described him as 40 years old, 5'10", medium build, reddish hair, beard. Police made a note to find out who this Red was. Another thing Brian did that raised investigators' eyebrows was he showed up for his second interview with a list of the things he had touched in Nancy's house that night. This included the schnapps bottle, doorknobs, light switches, toilet and faucet, and so on. He admitted to having significant training in the preservation of crime scenes in connection with his job as an ENT and firefighter. He seemed anxious to direct the investigation away from himself. And, of course, there was the missing earring, a gift from him to Nancy. In his second interview on July 18th, police asked Brian to take off his shirt and inspected him for any marks or scratches. There were none. And Brian had an alibi, sort of. Brian told the investigators that when he left Nancy's house that night, he drove home to his parents' house in Hibbing, arriving home around 1 a.m. His younger sister, also named Nancy, was still up watching MTV. He had a glass of milk in the kitchen and chatted with his father, Irvin. Then he turned in for the night. Police talked to Brian's sister, Nancy, and dad, Irvin. They both remembered talking to Brian in the kitchen at 1.03 that night, according to the clock on the microwave. After they said goodnight, Brian went to his room and shut the door. It remained closed and was closed when Irvin went to the bathroom at 3 a.m. So, as you can hear, this is not an ironclad alibi. Brian's mom, Ardella, a nurse on the night shift, got home at 7 a.m. and his car was there. But no one can say with certainty that Brian was behind his closed bedroom door, asleep, when Nancy Doherty was attacked around 3.30 a.m. Hibbing, where Brian's home was, is only a 10-minute drive from Chisholm. He easily could have sneaked out and killed Nancy and been home by the time his mom returned in the morning. Brian stayed at the top of the suspect list. He was re-interviewed in December 1998, approximately 12 years after the murder, by then-Chisholm Police Chief Scott Erickson. Erickson asked about Brian's temper, which had been attested to by others. Brian admitted to having a temper and said he was working on it. Here is an excerpt from his 1998 interview. Question, were you worried about being accused of or arrested for Nancy's death? Answer, 
I wasn't worried, but I knew the possibility existed, and I know it still exists. But worried, no. I had done nothing wrong. Question. In your mind, you said the possibility still exists. Do you believe that? Answer. I don't think so. Not at this point in time. I gave hair, blood, saliva samples a month afterwards, whatever the time was. I gave blood a couple years ago. If there was forensic evidence, I believe that if the possibility existed that I'd be in jail right now. Question. Are you involved in her death in any way whatsoever, Brian? Answer. No, not directly. Question. Okay. Answer. Indirectly, I still believe that somebody saw us together that night who didn't think she should have been with me or might have seen us being together, and this was a jealousy thing or something. I don't feel that this was a random act of violence where someone drives to Chisholm and, geez, I'm going to go kill someone, and drives to a house there and kills her. Um, so involved, not directly, but I feel that if I hadn't been there, I hadn't seen her, that this would never have happened. Question. Just exactly what we talked about, what you mentioned now, the theory is also has also gone the other way, that maybe she was with somebody and you saw her with somebody. Answer, actually, but um, when would I have been here to see her with somebody? I'm 300 miles away. Question, okay, but what about on that particular night? Answer, well, I was with her. I was at my parents. I said, hi, dad. How you doing? I went to bed. There was no time for me to see her with somebody else. Question. Did you have any gut feelings or suspicions of Nancy being with somebody else? I'm looking for names here. That day, the day before, week before, month before? Answer. Um, she had been seeing Scott L., and I found out about that indirectly. Question. And when you found out about that, how did you feel? Answer. I knew something was going on just in our conversations and stuff the way she was, but her business. So I didn't dig into it at all. Um... Was it the week before or something? I know she'd been staying in Minneapolis with somebody she said was a friend. Question. Um, is it possible you could have lost your temper or lost control at any given time and been responsible for this in any way? Answer. You know, the human mind is a strange thing, and I've often wondered, geez, did I wake up in the middle of the night, drive over there and kill her, go back to bed and not know it? Question. That thought crossed my mind too, Brian. I'm going to be honest with you. End quote. Was Brian just second-guessing himself, or was there a real possibility that he had lost it that night and killed Nancy? The problem with this theory was that Brian very early on gave saliva, blood, and hair samples, and finger and palm prints for elimination purposes. And the saliva and blood samples showed that he was not the person who left his DNA at the crime scene. He didn't kill Nancy, but he looked like such a good suspect that he was still being discussed as one after the case was solved. Speaking of that, when Nancy's real killer was identified, some of Brian's words turned out to be very perceptive. He said to police in one of his interviews, quote, I think the one that might have done this is somebody who knew Nancy and maybe knew that the kids were gone, the dogs were gone with Gina, and the fact that the stool was outside her window, maybe somebody got up on that, looked in, saw her in there, and the fact that the grass wasn't dead under it like it had recently been placed there, end quote. Besides Gary, Scott, and Brian, police had another potential suspect early on, although they didn't know who he was. They didn't reveal this information publicly until 2001, which I found quite strange since a tip could very well have led to their identifying him. But apparently, three days before Nancy's murder, she was seen having an argument with a man in her backyard. BCA Special Agent Randy Stricker told the Duluth News Tribune that at 3 p.m. on Saturday, July 12, 1986, 
Witnesses reported seeing Nancy arguing with and being chased around her yard by a 250-pound, six-foot-tall man in his 40s with a beer gut, a ponytail, and a scruffy beard. He was dressed casually in a T-shirt, jeans, and sneakers and drove a four-door, dark-colored sedan. The Mesabi Tribune reported that a vehicle with four doors, dark in color, was parked on Nancy's lawn during the altercation. This was, obviously, very strange. Nancy could easily have been having a disagreement with a contractor or an extended family member and so on, but he was chasing her around the yard? That doesn't happen every day. And no one seemed to have a report about what happened after that. Did Nancy go inside and lock the door? Did the guy just leave? It's not clear. But remember, Brian told police that Nancy also received a phone call around 8 p.m. on the night she died, and it was someone with whom she did not seem pleased. It sounded like Nancy had a beef with someone, or someone had it out for her. But police kept this so close to the vest, her husband Jim wasn't even told about this potential suspect. Police did manage to track down the guy named Red from the Tibrock Bar on the night of Nancy's murder. He was interviewed on July 18th. I have no idea how he was ruled out, but his name was not mentioned again in the case file. Nancy's case stalled for a long time. Police looked at everyone, the neighbors, Alan and John, people at Nancy's work, including a maintenance man at the nursing home who had said some strange things, male members of the ambulance service where Nancy volunteered. They tried to track down the guy with the beer gut seen arguing with her in the yard, and they did track down the guy named Red who hit on her repeatedly. And, of course, they kept Nancy's lovers on the list, Gary, Scott, and Brian. There were lots of theories and rumors, but no one was ever arrested. The rumors ran the gamut, as Jim Doherty told the Duluth News Tribune. He said, quote, The rumors ranged from me hiring someone to kill her to someone drifting through town to everything in between, end quote. Absent an ironclad alibi such as Jim's, there was no way for police to eliminate people. Jim told the News Tribune, quote, I had kind of decided it might not ever be solved, end quote. Nancy was killed in 1986 before the use of DNA in criminal investigations was the norm. But in 2001, new DNA testing technology was available. And the BCA decided to reinvestigate Nancy's case with an eye to retesting the evidence. Quoted in the Duluth News Tribune, Chisholm Police Chief Scott Erickson said, quote, Murder cases are never closed, but we have done as much as we could over the years and exhausted our resources and manpower, end quote. The Chisholm investigators were at a standstill, so they welcomed the BCA involvement in the case. Sure enough, testing on the vaginal swabs taken at Nancy's autopsy yielded a complete male DNA profile from the sperm cell fraction. And DNA analysis of fingernail clippings from her left hand resulted in DNA from two or more persons, with the predominant DNA profile matching Nancy and the minor being a male. This directly from later court documents, quote, The unidentified contributor of the male profile on the sperm cell fraction cannot be excluded as the source of the DNA obtained from the left-hand fingernail clippings. YSTR testing was also performed on the sperm cell fraction and both the right and left-hand fingernail clippings. The Y-chromosomal DNA profile obtained from the right and left-hand fingernail clippings matches the Y-chromosomal DNA profile obtained from the sperm cell fraction. End quote. Whoever had ejaculated inside Nancy was the same man she had scratched while he was attacking her. In honor of the 15th anniversary of Nancy's murder, the BCA's Cold Case Homicide Unit established a 12-member task force to tackle the Doherty case. 
Part of this was attributable to Gina, Nancy's daughter. By now, Gina was an adult with two young children of her own, and she'd been pushing the CPD to keep working the case. She and her husband had met the previous year with the BCA supervisor for northern Minnesota, urging action, and he referred them to the cold case unit. Task force members included seasoned investigators from the CPD, St. Louis County Sheriff's Office, and the BCA, including a crime analyst and a forensic scientist. The goal was to re-interview people and obtain DNA samples and start eliminating men named in the case file one by one. In addition, the Chisholm police offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Nancy's killer. When the push was over, the task force said the public campaign had generated more than 100 leads that would each be investigated. They interviewed between 30 and 50 people and polygraphed a number of them. And they collected DNA from 30 to 40 people, men like Gary, Nancy's first husband Kurt, Brian, Scott, and Jim. Some examples of other men who gave samples were a guy named Jim M., who was the husband of a nurse who worked with Nancy at the nursing home. He was a creep who had propositioned Nancy a number of times, offering to take her away on trips. Another guy from whom they collected DNA was Eugene H. He was a maintenance man at the nursing home, who had also asked Nancy out a number of times. Nancy had actually gone out for drinks with him once or twice. Chief Erickson told me that the DNA elimination campaign was incredibly broad. I saw the list of people who were tested and ruled out, and many of them were just local guys who were acquainted with Nancy, or guys who had a certain reputation, one guy who had had a mental breakdown, and so on. I don't want to use the word desperate, but they were grasping at straws. They eliminated person after person. They just never found the right guy. The guy named Red from the Tibrock Bar that night was ruled out by DNA. So was a guy whose last name was Gilmore, who investigators believe strongly resembled the man who had been seen arguing with and chasing Nancy mere days before she was killed. Gilmore had a record of violent crime and had also moved away shortly after the murder. Investigators went all the way to Texas to stake him out and get DNA. On the 20th anniversary of Nancy's death in 2006, authorities from the CPD and BCA held a news conference to remind the public that the case was still unsolved and the investigators were still seeking information on the identity of Nancy's killer. Kevin Smith, a spokesperson for the Minnesota Department of Public Safety, stated, quote, We feel that of all the cold cases we have right now, this is the most solvable. We only have a couple of pieces missing, end quote. The reward for information was announced to have been increased to $50,000. In order to stir up public interest in the case, the investigators shared some theories that they had not discussed before. Investigators felt that the person who killed Nancy was very likely an old friend or an acquaintance. Police Chief Scott Erickson said, We believe it was someone who knew her and that knew her well. Someone who lived relatively close, maybe in the neighborhood, community, or a surrounding community. She knew this person enough to feel comfortable letting him in her house and to converse with. End quote. I think the investigators felt Nancy knew her attacker because of the phone call she received that night from the still unidentified person and because of the argument that Cassie and Terry heard in Nancy's yard. Also, Brian had told the investigators that when he had popped back into Nancy's at the end of the night, she was changing her clothes, and it occurred to him that maybe she was meeting up with someone else. So it made sense that Nancy had invited someone over that night and the two had gotten into an argument. From the crime scene, it didn't look as though Nancy had been peacefully slumbering when she was beset by her killer. 
The evidence that she was outside in her clothing was strong. And that fact, plus the phone call, seemed to indicate she knew the guy. At the press conference, investigators stressed that they believed the killer knew Nancy and was probably still in the area. DPS spokesman Kevin Smith said investigators were interested in any information the public could provide about that 8 o'clock p.m. phone call. Quote, it could have been the killer maybe arranging a meeting. It could have been just a friend calling to say hello, he said. We're asking people to think back to anything they can remember, anything even insignificant, and give us a call, end quote. Dennis Fear, a special agent with the cold case unit of the BCA, stated that one theory was that Nancy's killer was someone upset with her decision to move away from town. Chief Erickson said, quote, If anyone had any contact with Nancy up to two weeks prior to the incident, we want to talk to you. We'd like to talk to everyone, even if we've talked to you before. Without the public's help, we can't solve it, end quote. He was right, but the help provided by the public was not the type he was envisioning here. Gina and her husband and daughter were in attendance at the news conference. Gina said, This has been very traumatic for our family. We really need to find the person who did this to my mother. He needs to face up to what he did. It's been way too long. Police Chief Erickson said that the case was frustrating for the family and for law enforcement. By the 20th anniversary of the murder, over 100 DNA samples had been collected and compared to the DNA profile found on Nancy's person. None of them were a match. Chief Erickson retired in 2010 with 100 samples collected and nothing to show for it. He was personally invested in this case, which spanned his entire three-decade career at the CPD. He handed over the reins to his successor, but he never forgot the most frustrating case of his career. By 2019, Vern Manor was the chief of police in Chisholm. In light of all the cases being solved by forensic genealogy at the time, Manor and the BCA decided to try the same with Nancy's case. They knew there was ample DNA to work with. In March of 2019, Chief Manor contacted Parabon Nanolabs about conducting the forensic genealogy. Anne-Marie Gross of the BCA then arranged for her agency to release a DNA sample obtained from the crime scene. On December 9, 2019, Chief Manor notified Parabon that he had received the funds necessary to proceed and authorized Parabon to conduct its investigation. The BCA then sent a DNA sample to a separate lab, Okisogen, for profiling. That lab prepared a SNP profile to facilitate the genealogical research. First, Parabon used the SNP profile to conduct a phenotyping analysis of the unknown suspect. On January 23, 2020, Parabon issued a snapshot phenotype report. Their report predicted that the suspect most likely had brown or hazel eyes and was unlikely to have blue or green eyes, with 98% confidence. He most likely had brown or black hair and was unlikely to have blonde hair. They were 96.4% confident of this. He also was likely to have had very fair or fair skin and zero to few freckles. The suspect's heritage was predicted to be 83% Northern European and about 15% Southern European. This means that the majority of his ancestry was from Northern Europe, but he likely had an ancestor, probably a great-grandparent, who was from Southern Europe. This fact would become important when the forensic genealogy happened. On July 13, 2020, Parabon issued a report. Upon uploading the suspect's profile into GEDmatch and family tree DNA, there were no helpful DNA relatives found in GEDmatch, but a number found in family tree DNA. 
The top two DNA relatives were 428 centimorgans, likely a first cousin once removed, and 215 centimorgans, likely a second cousin or genetic equivalent. Additional lesser DNA relatives, numbers 3 through 9, shared anywhere from 15 to 37 centimorgans with the suspect. All of these matches, except match number 6, a woman with 21 centimorgans in common with the suspect, shared DNA with each other. This established genetic network number 1. Match number 6 was the lone representative of another genetic network from which the suspect was also descended. So the genealogist, C.C. Moore, had to triangulate to determine where genetic network number one intersected with the network match number six was in. But it wasn't that easy. A family tree for match number one should have included matches two, three, four, seven, eight, and nine, since C.C. could see they were all related in genetic network number one. But when she went to create his tree, that didn't make any sense. The other matches weren't in his tree. Based on circumstantial evidence she could see regarding match number one, including that his parents of record married well after his birth, and that he was a member of a Facebook support group for people seeking their birth parents, Cece concluded that match number one was the subject of misattributed paternity. In other words, the father listed on his birth certificate was not his biological father. Cece tried to contact this DNA relative to obtain information on his biological relatives, but he didn't respond. This from the Parabon report, quote, Match number one does not have any connection to match number two on paper, yet they share DNA. Based on the residence location of his mother around the time of his conception and the genetic network created through researching other matches in this case, the analyst has developed a hypothesis regarding the identity of match number one's biological father, end quote. Tracing back the heritage of genetic network number one led Cece to the union of Lemuel Thomas Strait, 1820-1896, and Margaret Snow, 1830-1837. The suspect was also descended from this union on one side of his tree. The report says, quote, Based on the amount of DNA shared between match number two and the subject, it is likely that the subject descends from the great-grandparents of match number two on this ancestral line, William Strait and Thelma Nowell. This couple had six children. Two of those six children were the direct ancestors of matches one and two, the two strong matches to the suspect, which meant that they were not the suspect's direct ancestors. This left four straight ancestors who could be in the suspect's direct family tree. Okay, now this part is important. Remember that the phenotype report on the suspect profile determined that he had ancestors from Southern Europe. His admixture showed approximately 83% Northern European and 15% Southern European heritage. Again, from Parabon's report, quote, Based on the predicted ancestry of the subject, one of their descendants must have had a child with a person who has ancestral roots in Southern Europe in order for the subject to have the correct mix of ancestral origins, end quote. However, in looking at the four straight family candidates, they were found to have lived in California and Missouri with no ties to Minnesota, and no marriages were found between any of these individuals and someone of Southern European ancestry. So now what? Cece had to move down the tree and look at the children and grandchildren of the four straight candidates, and she found a promising trail. This from the report, quote, Extensive research led to the discovery that the oldest child of William and Thelma, Billy Warren Strait, married Pearl Lucille Haig and had two daughters. One of these daughters was Barbara Ann Strait, 
born March 19, 1947. She married Michael Allen Carbo, born 17th of June, 1947, on February 4, 1966, in Los Angeles, California. The Carbo surname was a clue, and genealogical research revealed that Michael A. Carbo Sr.'s paternal great-grandparents were born in Guayas, Ecuador. Their ancestors were primarily from Spain. This was key because it was the first straight descendant who was found to have had children with a person who had Southern European ancestry, end quote. Cece was able to figure out, upon examining this branch of the family trees she had built, that match number six was connected to Michael Carbo Sr.'s mother from a marriage between Jacob Hawk, 1780 to 1829, and Marianne Warren, 1776 to 1862, way back around the turn of the 19th century. She was on the right track. But there was still the problem that there was no Minnesota connection. This was resolved when marriage and divorce records indicated that Michael Carbo Sr. and Barbara divorced in April 1970, and Barbara moved to Chisholm, Minnesota, where she remarried. And she brought with her to Minnesota her children from her first marriage to Michael Carbo Sr., including his namesake and only son, Michael Allen Carbo Jr. Parabon's report recommended Chisholm authorities attempt to obtain DNA from Michael Allen Carbo Jr. to analyze against the suspect DNA in this case. This is the end of Part 1 of the Nancy Doherty case. Part 2 is available right now.